Macworld Podcast, number 34, April 5th, 2006. Hey everyone, and welcome back to the Macworld Podcast. Once again, I'm your host, Sarus Faravar. Today on the show, we're going to be talking about our picks, Macworld's picks of the 30 most significant products over the last 30 years made by Apple Computer. These range from, well, I can't exactly tell you because we're going to be rolling them all out over on the website uh, this coming week. What I can tell you is that they represent a whole slew of some of the older stuff to some of the newer stuff, and there's a few surprises uh, hidden in between. Uh, so to kick that off uh, with our coverage, we're going to be hearing from Macworld senior editor Chris Breen, and he's going to take us through some of the products that he wrote about on Macworld.com. Firstly, before we get into that interview, I just wanted to talk about some a couple of the products that I uh, had the good fortune of writing about. Um, one is the Apple Newton now, the Newton has a very special place in my heart. This is, of course, uh, the Apple PDA that was developed in the mid-90s. It was built uh, from about 1992 to about 1996, 97, around there. And the Newton really was ahead of its time in a lot of ways. I actually own a Newton, believe it or not. Uh, I have a Newton 110 that I got from a family friend, and this is a really... Uh, neat device that, you know, of course, recognizes handwriting and does all kinds of stuff like that. It even had a PC card slot. You can even run Wi-Fi on these things now. There are guys, uh, there's a guy in Australia who has run, who has a Newton running as a web server even. That's pretty, that's pretty amazing. Uh, but, you know, what I really liked about the Newton is that it, it was a great idea, but, you know, it didn't really have the appeal that a PDA does now. It was very bulky, kind of expensive. It had some technologies that didn't really pan out, like infrared, for example. You could beam documents and drawings and whatever to your to your friend with the other Newton um, and stuff like that. But it nonetheless represented a sort of you know groundbreaking point as far as uh, smaller computing type devices go. So I have a little uh, paragraph long article on uh, Macworld.com about the Newton and, and some of the other ones. Um, but as I said, we're here to talk about uh, some of the 30 most significant products, and we're going to chat with uh, Macworld Senior Editor Chris Breen to guide us through some of those products that he talked about. Uh, in particular, we're going to be looking at, of course, the iPod, the, the original iPod, uh, iTunes, um, also the Apple decal, the st those packs of stickers that you get uh, with every Mac, and also a couple of applications that came bundled with the original Macintosh, and that is MacWrite and MacPaint. And so we're going to cut now to an interview that I did with Chris Breen to talk about some of those products. Chris Breen, welcome back to the Macworld Podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me. How's it going? I'm doing really well. How about you? I'm doing very well. It's uh, I'm getting sick of this rain out here. Um, well, we've only had like 28 days of rain in the last 29, I think. What is this, Seattle? I thought this was California. Uh, yeah, you know, it's sort of that global wetness that we're getting now. <laughs> All right. Well, we are not here to talk about the rain. We're here to talk about the 30th anniversary of Apple, which was just celebrated this past weekend, uh, April the 1st. Uh, Apple was incorporated on April the 1st, 1976. And uh, we're on Macworld.com. We have the 30 significant products that Apple has released over the last 30 years. 
And Chris, you're here to, to tell us why some of the ones that you wrote about were significant. Obviously, uh, the iPod is one of Apple's main flagship products nowadays. It's, it's really carrying the company. Uh, and you wrote up a small article on Macworld.com concerning how the original iPod was really a sort of groundbreaking device for uh, music players and the music industry as a whole. Can you talk about how the iPod, the original iPod, differed from some of the other MP3 players of the day? Yeah, I mean, this is kind of a classic example of Apple taking an existing product that was really lousy and and making something beautiful out of it. Prior to that, prior to the iPod, there were these little MP3 players. Uh, that would hold like 256 megabytes, maybe 512 for the really, really expensive ones. And they transferred data over a really slow connection. I mean, you, you'd go over USB or some of them were actually serial connections. And to load maybe a f- three or four albums worth of material took half an hour, 40 minutes. They had these little tiny displays that told you basically nothing. Um, they were flash-based players. Uh, or you'd have to buy expensive memory cards to put into these things. So they were costly, took forever to load them. They sounded okay, but they didn't have a lot of features. They were tough to navigate because the LCD screen was tiny, lousy interfaces. And the client you used to load music onto these things was terrible. Most of the time you'd sort of drag drag and drop things in there, or they'd have kludged together some kind of awful utility for doing this. So they were expensive. Who would want to buy these things? Suddenly Apple comes out was something that holds a thousand songs. It was hard drive based. It used FireWire, so file transfer was very quick. It had an elegant interface through iTunes, and it suddenly made sense. Now, granted, when the iPod first came out, a lot of people said four hundred bucks for a music player. Who'd buy this thing? Uh, and then when you actually used one, you realized, oh, okay, there really is a lot of value in here. So it took a lousy product and turned it into something brilliant that caught on. What was sort of your gut reaction when you first got to play with the iPod? Well, I think a lot of people have the same gut reaction, like I said, is they saw how much this thing was, you know, the price was $400 for a five gigabyte player. And I think a lot of people were just shocked that, you know, who'd buy such a thing? And Apple did something very smart when they did the press event for the the initial release of the iPod is they gave every journalist in the room an iPod to take. And... It wasn't simply to suck up to the press. I mean, they honestly didn't, but I think they really understood that if you used one, you'd understand the brilliance of the design. I didn't get one immediately. Actually, I I got Phil Michael's uh, iPod a couple of days later. And prior to having that, I thought, this is really expensive. I don't know. But once I used one, I held one in my hand, and I understood how easy it was to use this thing. Then the light came on. So I thought, ah, okay, this is brilliant. I can get my music on here very easily. I can rip CDs, put them on the iPod. And at that point, I was sold. I understood that there really was $400 worth of value in this thing. And it took the rest of the world really kind of going into Apple stores and touching one. And then for them, too, once you had it in your hand, then you realized, okay, this makes a lot of sense. On a related note, I mean, you talked about iTunes and how well the iPod integrated into iTunes, uh, and you also wrote up a small article also on Macworld.com about iTunes. Talk to us about how iTunes was a significant step as far as music applications and players go. Yeah, iTunes was Apple's kind of big entry into this uh, digital home music 
market. Prior to that, kind of the best program out there was SoundJam MP, which was created by Cassidy and Green. Apple wanted to get into this business. They knew they were going to develop an iPod. They wanted an easy way to rip music from CDs into a into a Macintosh. And they went out shopping, and they talked to a couple of different companies, and they ended up talking to uh, Jeff Robin, who created SoundJam. They understood it was a brilliant program, and they basically bought it out. They gave Cassidy and Green some money. They hired Jeff. They gave Jeff some money. And he went in and he tweaked the thing so it could become more of an Apple product. What's sort of interesting is at the time, SoundJam was actually a more uh, feature-rich product than was the original version of iTunes. For example, you could record directly into it, not something that iTunes has ever been able to do. Uh, it supported more devices. Um, it had a karaoke mode, which was kind of cute, and, and iTunes doesn't have that. Once iTunes existed, it brought a lot of stuff into it. So it wasn't just for getting music onto an iPod or just ripping CDs, but it became the gateway for uh, encoding music in different ways. So, if, for example, you have an AIFF file. You want to convert that to a WAV file. You want to convert it to an MP3 file. iTunes was a destination for that. Uh, you could listen to internet streaming radio. It eventually became a podcast aggregator became kind of Apple's catch-all music application for music playing, not music creation, that's GarageBand's job, but for playing music and sort of getting music uh, into your life. And the remarkable thing about it is that over all this time, Apple has added feature after feature after feature. The thing plays videos now, for example. It's got the iTunes Music Store. It's still a really easy application to use, which is a testament to Apple's design sensibilities. Now, what about the visualization uh, feature on iTunes where it plays all kinds of funky, weird geometric shapes and uh, various things? Did you ever hear how that came to be or how that works even? Well, actually, it's part of SoundJam. So that was a feature that was brought over directly from SoundJam. It wasn't a copy because SoundJam was able to use more plugins than iTunes does. But it was just sort of this whole digital music idea. This is a that sort of visualization goes, I'm afraid, back before you were born, Sarus. That uh, there were these devices that you would hook up to your stereo, they would react to uh, volume and uh, frequency. So if you got more bass frequencies, it would trigger a certain number of lights. And uh, and I think it was a sort of the lava lamp kind of 60s thing of sound jam. It was cute. You didn't need to have it on, but it was kind of a cool thing to do. So when they brought it over to iTunes, I think as they were looking at the feature set and saying, no, we don't want that, I thought, oh, if you could do that, go ahead and throw that in there. Uh, not a lot of people use it, but it's one of those wow factors that that Apple throws into products. You don't need it to do that. All you want to do is play music. But it's kind of a cool thing to be able to flip it on and space out to whatever you happen to be listening to at the time. Now, one of the older products that uh, you wrote about that came with the original Mac has nothing to do with music, in fact, uh, and that would be uh, Mac Write and Mac Paint. How were those programs uh, significant in the early days of the Mac? It was significant because these both were uh, bundled with the original uh, original Mac. So you got your 128K Mac, and and Apple was pushing hard on this thing to get people to to buy them, and it wouldn't do you much good if it didn't come with something. Well, in those days, Macs didn't have hard drives; you had floppy drives. So they needed some kind of program that 
best characterized the nature and personality of the Mac. And MacWrite and MacPaint were it. They were immediately useful. You loaded MacWrite, you, you know, you stuck the floppy in there, and that's what you ran it from. And the and MacWrite and MacPaint were on the same floppy. And you had a word processor. Now, this we take all these things for granted now, but at the time, people were using IBM Selectrix. If you were, like, lucky, you had a really good IBM typewriter. But suddenly, you can type on your Mac, and you can put 17 different kinds of fonts on your documents and make them really ugly. But it didn't matter because... It was a cool thing to do. But Mac Paint, more than Mac, right, is, is the application that, people, that caused people to fall in love with the Macintosh. It was very intuitive. You had a little palette with a few tools on it, and you could draw pictures with your computer with just clicking your mouse. And this was a radical idea at the time that nobody knew how to draw pictures with a computer. If you're using a a PC at the time, you had to use the command line. So there were no graphic tools for actually getting in there and, and drawing as if you had a, a pencil in your hand. So a lot of people, if you go back and look at kind of the early adopters of the Macintosh, invariably Mac Paint is what they cite as triggering their excitement about the Macintosh. And also what brought, what kind of exemplified the Mac with these two programs is that the commands were very similar. When you went into the menus, they all did the same thing. You look under the file menu, and there's are the commands you saw. You go to edit, same stuff. So you have this consistency across menus. And again, we take that for granted now. Windows is still trying to get that right after all these years. And they're getting closer. But again, if you look at what computing was at the time, if you're using a PC running DOS, you would have these keyboard, I mean, used F keys to do things like copy and paste. Instead, here's the Mac graphic user interface. You always know that copy and paste are going to be in the edit menu. Open and new and close are always going to be in the file menu. And that all began with MacWrite and MacPaint. I guess we could th- sort of think of MacPaint in some ways as like a proto-Photoshop in a way. In a way, it was. It was all, I mean, Photoshop really is MacPaint done to the nth degree. It's pixel-based, just as Mac Paint was pixel-based. And it introduced things like uh, the paint bucket tool, for example. You draw a rectangle, and you can click on the paint bucket tool and select a pattern, a checkerboard pattern, and little balls that they had. Or there were these grid patterns that you put in it, and you just click in there, and suddenly it would fill with this pattern. And it was like magic. Again, we take it for granted, but at the time, it was amazing. And then if you looked at people's artwork who did really, really good work, pixel by pixel, they did some amazing stuff with Mac Paint. There's still some things out on the web that I encourage people to look for. Google Mac Paint and look at some of the drawings that were created at the time. Some of them are just remarkable. And again, we didn't have scanners. It was just some person in there clicking pixels in one by one, and it's just remarkable. And as I recall, there seemed to be, I guess that was the sort of same uh, technology, you're talking about pixel by pixel drawing, that allowed you to create different uh, desktop patterns, as I recall, from back in the day? Yeah, that came a little bit later. Um, it was something that you you did have a desktop pattern, uh, DA. That's a desk accessory for those of you who are under a certain age. Uh, yeah, in the old days, we had these weird desk accessories, and we had to sort of use this utility to turn them on and make them work, and it was really clunky compared to what we have now. But yeah, it, eventually you could you could customize your desktop, and that was really exciting too because it became more of your Mac. 
again, you're not stuck with somebody else's idea of what your Mac should look like or operate like. You've got to customize it. And, and that, again, is another bit of brilliance from Apple. Now, as far as customization goes and, and having personality and, and having a real sort of culture surrounding uh, the Mac and Apple Computer as a company, um, another surprising item that I think made it onto our uh, top 30 significant products were the Apple, the original Apple Computer color Apple decals that came with every Mac uh, that, you know, really, I think, you know, brought a sense of identity. And it's a tradition that still continues today, although it's a, now a white Apple um, that, you know, every new Mac comes with these stickers and, and you see them all over the place. Is that, you know, how did, it, how did the, this sticker make it onto our list? And you were the one, as I recall, who, uh, who vouched for it. So what was, why, why would you say that this was, was important? Yeah, I pushed for the sticker when we were, uh, when we were asked to contribute what we thought were the, the 30 top products. I put the sticker on there because I was trying to think of something that exemplified the spirit of the Macintosh and Apple and Mac users. And it really was the sticker that did it. If you, if you think about it, the back window of your car is kind of a sacred place that you use that spot for something that you really, really care about. A lot of people will put their college, uh, a decal from their college back there or, uh, a group that they support or a political organization or a charity or something. And when was the last time you saw a window sticker on the back window of anybody's car? I mean, they just don't have them because people don't care about windows. They just, they have to use it and they sort of, you know, some people can be enthusiastic about it, but not to the point where you're going to put a sticker on the back of your window. And so the Apple decal, I think it was a nice marketing idea. And they've, as you say, they've continued it throughout the history of Apple. You always get a new sticker. Even with iPods now, you get a sticker in there that has uh, the Apple logo on it. And it's a way for people to kind of announce the pride they have and the pleasure they have in using an Apple product. And you don't see that very often. You may see that in the music business. Uh, I know people will have like a Gibson sticker or a pasty symbol sticker or something on their on their. Uh, music stuff. But again, it reflects a passion for a product. And Apple has been able to do, do something like that, that very few companies have been able to. So to me, the decal was the testament of Apple's popularity, the passion people have for Apple products. So I guess that begs the question then, where is your Apple sticker? You know, I'm not really a showy person. So <laughs> I kind of keep them hidden away. I I have not put them on the back of my car because um, I don't have anything on the back of my car. I, I like to keep that part of my life a secret. But you can be sure that I've got a, a huge pile of these stickers, and I'm not sure what I'm going to do with them. But I actually have an original Mac 128K with a little plastic box and the sticker that, that came with it. So uh, I don't think it'll ever end up on eBay, but I do keep these things around. Believe it or not, even though when I was uh, two years old when the original Mac came out, I do have a sheet of the uh, you know unaltered stickers that came with came with that original Mac that is uh, pr prominently displayed on a mantle in my house. So it's, uh, I guess maybe I should put it behind a frame or something. But yeah, it, it won't go up on eBay anytime soon. But for people who don't have them, I suppose there are some on eBay. Oh, I, I think there probably are. And and again, see, that, that kind of shows that, that people are almost, that for them, some people, uh, Apple is a fetish. And this is a way of uh, of expressing that. 
and the fact that you've held on to these things because to you they're I don't they may not have reached the level of being sacred, but they're valuable enough that you just don't toss them out. We get a lot of stuff from a lot of companies. You know, they, they'll send you a little press kit with a little bumper sticker in it or a little pin or something. And it's pretty rare that you keep any of that stuff. Yet, here's stickers now that are, you know, they're really old now. We're, the Mac's been out since 84, and yet people still hang on to these things and treasure them and kind of treat them like a valuable comic book or something and seal them in plastic because that's how much the Mac means to them. All right. Well, uh, I think that about wraps it up. But just one last quick question. Do you think that there are any uh, sort of newer products that have been released in the last, you know, say a couple of years that, that you think we'll be talking about in another 30 years for the 60th anniversary of Apple? Oh, I think so. Uh, certainly the iPod, the, the latest generation of the iPod where they've got the iPod with video, that even though you can see it as an extension of the regular iPod, this is really a, a brand new step in, into making portable video accessible to people and also triggering the whole video and movie download. I think people will look back on that and say, this is where it started and look where we are now. Um, wireless is, was one of the things that Apple spearheaded. Yes, it's in every computer now, but through airport, Apple made it really, really easy. And, and so we're certainly going to see wireless in everything uh, from now on in, in ways that we can't even imagine it being used. So Apple is doing things now that are that are going to live on and have resonance throughout the years, and there's there's a lot more to come. It's nice to see Apple in a position where they've got a lot of money, they've got a lot of respect now, and so that's something they didn't have for years. So I think Apple is going to do some amazing stuff in the next 10, 5 couple of years great well thanks again uh chris for uh taking the time to to be on the podcast we greatly appreciate it great thanks for having me all right we'll talk to you again soon all right okay well that about wraps up our show show number 34 for the macro podcast uh we appreciate uh senior editor chris breen talking to us about uh, some of his favorite products that were on the Macworld's picks of the 30 most significant products over the last 30 years. So um, I just wanted to say thank you again for all the people who've been writing in on the show. Um, we do appreciate your taking time to, to write. I got some emails from South Africa and, and Italy and Paraguay and Canada and England and Australia and Florida and all kinds of places. And that's just really great. And, and, you know, when people write into me, as I said during the last podcast, it, you know, helps me feel like there is a connection as opposed to just me recording in a conference room by myself talking into a void. Um, so please do keep e emailing me. Unfortunately, I'm flat out, uh, as I said in the last podcast, of third-generation iPod cases. We may be having some future giveaways again, uh, so all you have to do is keep listening. But I'm happy to announce that the Macworld podcast will become more frequent. That is to say that currently, as you know, we're on a two-week schedule, and then we do extra podcasts as news breaks. Well, we're going to be having more podcasts as news breaks more frequently. That is to say that before we were only doing special edition podcasts when there was an Apple event or some other big announcement that we felt we needed to cover. Now, we're, if there's new things, for example, uh, the whole XP on a Mac thing, um, you know, if there's stuff that happens in between our uh, two-week podcast cycle, you can count on 
that I will be doing my best to bring you the uh, news that I can as quick as I can. Um, one thing, of course, that we're all anxiously waiting for is when the next Apple product announcement will be. Uh, I got an email from a listener uh, named JJ down in South Africa. How you doing, JJ? Um, and uh, he emailed me last week saying, you know, is this really true that Apple wasn't going to announce any new products on April the 1st, the 30th anniversary of Apple? And I said, if they are, they haven't told us yet. And, you know, Macworld, of course, is invited to all of these press events. Um, and I, of course, am, am down there collecting uh, sound for you to put on the podcast. And, and I try to get out – I try to get that out to you as quick as I can. So we don't know when the next Apple event will be. Uh, there's probably going to be some sort of announcement. I would say it's a good guess within the next month or so. But, you know, is Apple going to be, you know, releasing new Intel iBooks, uh, an entirely new iPod maybe? Who knows? Uh, Apple always has all kinds of tricks up its sleeve. So I don't really know when, when that will happen. But when it is announced, you can be sure to hear about it here on the Macworld podcast. And, of course, on Macworld.com, where, as I said earlier, uh, we're going to be rolling out the rest of our top 30 significant products from Apple uh, all through this week. Uh, by, the, by now, we're about almost halfway through um, with them. So make sure and check those out and go ahead and, you know, add a little comment down at the bottom. There's uh, always a comments section. Uh, speaking of comments, also I wanted to alert your attention to the comments field on the Macworld show notes. Uh, if you go onto the Macworld podcasting page and you look for podcast number 34, down at the bottom there's going to be a thing that says comment on this story. And uh, we really encourage you to, uh, you know, start some discussion going about the stuff that you hear in the podcast and to provide your own questions and thoughts and, and all that kind of thing. So uh, just want to keep things uh, interesting for you and uh, hear, from, hear from more of you again. Of course, you can always email me at cfaravar at macworld.com. And uh, you can email Chris Breen at cbreen at macworld.com. We'll have that all up in the show notes, of course. And, uh, yeah, so thanks again for listening. And uh, we hope to catch you right here next time on the Macworld Podcast. Signing off from San Francisco, this is Sarus Faravar for the Macworld Podcast. <laughs>